Hi, this is Oscar. This is Sanjana. And this is Hayden. You are listening to Daily Discoveries, and we are part of the Daily at the University of Washington, and this is the podcast where we discuss new discoveries in Science Weekly. So this week, we're talking about antimicrobial resistance, which is also known as antibiotic resistance. And according to the CDC, antimicrobial resistance causes 1.27 million deaths annually and is also associated with 5 million deaths per year. And there are 2.8 million antimicrobial infections in the U.S. per year. So this causes the need for less bacteria-specific drugs, which can negatively affect people's health and also is more expensive than first-line drugs. And so in one effort to combat this issue, as mentioned in an article from Science Daily, scientists from the University of Nottingham have created a software that uses DNA sequencing and machine learning to identify how and where bacteria that is antibiotic resistant is being transmitted to humans via the environment or animals. So in order to gather a significant source of data from antibiotic resistant bacteria, the researchers investigated large areas of livestock farming, which usually contain large amounts of bacteria that have antimicrobial resistant genes. And the researchers focused on livestock farming in China specifically, as poultry is the second most important source of meat in the country and is also the largest user of antibiotics. And the team collected 154 samples from the animals, workers, and their environment. And they isolated the E. coli strains and developed a software that uses genome sequencing and machine learning to identify the different pathogens they found at the farm and found that antimicrobial genes were located in pathogenic and non-pathogenic bacteria. Using this approach allowed the researchers to discover a network of genes that were associated with antibiotic resistance and were found in animals, workers, and the environment. And they were able to link genes that were previously not associated with antimicrobial resistance with those that have been. The researchers haven't figured out where the bacteria is coming from and only know that it is transmitted from animals to humans and can affect anyone who eats the contaminated meat. However, the computational approach they developed will allow them to predict farms that may have more antimicrobial resistant bacteria on a larger scale. And this gives them the ability to identify new genes that also allows for more targets for the development of new drugs. Yeah, I was curious, as far as the identification of the genes that previously were not associated with the antimicrobial resistance. Do you know how they made those connections? I'm not completely sure. I think it has to do with the computational approach they made and how they linked all the genes together. Do they compare it to previous bacteria that they know are not resistant? Yeah. Right on. Yeah, I, it's, um, it's pretty cool what you can do with some of the machine learning. There was another paper... Uh, well, an additional one that we're going to talk about today is using not necessarily a machine learning approach, but still computational analysis of large data sets. It's out of the Cesar de la Fuente Nunez group at the at UPenn, and they discovered new anti, uh, antimicrobials within our, our own proteome. So not necessarily looking at the environment for new antimicrobials or whatnot, but also, yes, this study is looking at new antimicrobials and not necessarily looking at antimicrobial resistance. And the study is called Mining for Encrypted Peptide Antibiotics in the Human Proteome. And so it sounds like what they did 
is they just looked at the human proteome. So all the proteins that we have, they then went through the sequences and they actually left out sequences that had been previously identified as antimicrobial. So they weren't looking necessarily for like ones that had uh, previously been identified. Instead, they were looking for, for new uh, antimicrobials or antimicrobial, even antimicrobial sequences. And so what they did is they would chop them up, these sequences up into, I think, eight to 50 amino acids. So the building blocks of proteins. And then they would look at just the physical chemical properties of these sequences. So just what are like physically, what are the properties? What are the chemical properties? And there's a paper previously published that was like, these are the physical chemical properties associated with antimicrobials usually. And so then they assumed that there'd be a linear relationship between the physical chemical properties and antimicrobial activity. From this, they identified 2,600 peptides. So quite a few that they believed would have this uh, strong antimicrobial activity. And they were really in two subsets of peptides. You had one where you have peptides within previously characterized proteins. So basically, if you think you have 400 amino acids, maybe within that 400, you have a 50 or 150 amino acid chain that's going to have this antimicrobial activity. The other thing is they also just looked at proteins that are very well characterized. So like different neurotransmitters, different hormone receptors, and look to see if perhaps they also had an additional activity or additional antimicrobial activity. And so that's where they got those 2,600 from. And surprisingly enough, the structures were very different from the previously characterized ones. You know, generally you have a lot of cationic and hydrophobic residues. So you have a lot of positive charges and also these residues that'll not necessarily favorably interact with water. What it allows these proteins to do is they can pass through, like previously characterized antimicrobials, able to then pass through membranes, right? These antipathic properties that allow it to pass through membranes. However, on these new sets of antimicrobials that they identified, it was most, well, not necessarily mostly, but it was less cationic and more hydrophobic. So, you know, maybe they're better able to pass through the membrane or they get stuck in the membrane or they directly target the membrane. We don't really know. It wasn't a mechanism-based paper. It was, a, you know, this kind of this new style of developing drugs is you just do these massive library screens. So instead of rational design of antimicrobials, you're like, oh, this protein synthesizes this part of the, you know, the membrane, or let's target the ribosome where you have protein translation or uh, mRNA translation. Instead, they're just like, we're going to screen everything and maybe it's going to have some activity. We don't really know how it's acting, but we just know it's acting. And so then they took these and they took the 55 kind of most diverse, so the ones that were furthest away, and they tested those on pathogenic strains. They found that about 68% of the one of the 55, so yeah, roughly 39 of the proteins were active. And what was actually pretty interesting, I thought at least, is they test, so they tested them on uh, normal pathogens, so uh, pathogenic E. coli, pathogenic Pseudomonas aeruginosa, pathogenic Acetobacter pomani and then several other strains. Then they also uh, tested them against 13 known gut and skin commensals. So 13 bacteria that are known to interact beneficially with humans. And they found that at least in the gut, the gut, the, the human protein, the human antimicrobial activity. So the, the antimicrobial activity from the proteins we had identified, uh, isolated was more selective in the gut. 
it looked about the same on the skin. It didn't look much more selective, but in the gut, it was at least a little bit more selective as far as not necessarily that of the 55, none of them targeted him, targeted these back, uh, bacteria. I think all the bacteria were affected by at least one of the 55, but of the 55, less of them. So maybe it was like 28 of the 55 affected the gut bacteria while 39 or 40 affected the pathogenic strains, which is pretty cool. They then did some in vitro testing and in vivo testing. So they basically went from, well, they went, they went from the in vitro to in vivo, I should say. So they tested them on two different models of infection. One was a skin abscess and they did a combo. So they took the two most active uh, antimicrobials that they discovered and they showed that it, uh, it was able to treat the infection approximately as well as the previous uh, previously characterized antimicrobials. And then they took it to a more kind of stringent model, which is this thigh infection urine model. I didn't really understand why one was more stringent than the other, to be honest. And they showed that again, the combo was approximately the same as the current antibiotic um, as far as treating infection, but it was quite a bit better than one of the other. So they used two antibiotic controls. It was about the same as polymyxin B, but it was much better than the level levoflaxacin for treating the thigh infection. And I thought it was, you know, it's pretty good evidence that maybe this approach can be expanded. It'd be interesting going beyond just amino acids where we have these, you know, natural product, um, exploring natural products that plants and bacteria make is a pretty large field um, because it's known that these will have either anti-cancer or antimicrobial effects. Um, and natural products are just these crazy molecules that plants and bacteria are able to produce. And usually they're for fighting off some sort of other thing. So they're called a secondary metabolite. They're not necessarily used for producing energy or biosynthesis. So they're not like making membranes or doing anything like that. They're just for, you know, shooting out into the environment and getting rid of competition. And so It'd be interesting taking these approaches to this, looking at the physical chemical properties and taking it to the natural products for better prediction. You know, as far as screening these massive libraries, if you're able to have an additional computational screen, you could discover compounds much faster. So yeah, that was kind of the mining encrypted antimicrobials in our proteome. Do y'all have any additional thoughts or questions about the paper? I was just wondering, how did they select for this specific peptide sequence? Like, what were they scanning for? So I didn't read the paper that they cited as to kind of how they decided what these physical chemical properties are. But from my understanding, there is a previous paper that came out, and it basically said that these are the chemical properties or the physical properties of amino acids that are generally associated with antimicrobial resistance. So just like, you know, if you have a Maybe it's like the pKa so the, or the pH of these uh, strains or like the reduction potential. I'm not entirely sure what exactly the properties that they were looking at are. Um, oh, so there's just like certain like chemical properties that they're like yeah. connected with? Oh, okay. Yeah. And so then they just, they literally just screen like the entire human proteome. And so they just look through all the sequences. So they would take a protein sequence, chop it up, analyze each of those chopped bits, and then decide whether or not that protein had antimicrobial activity. So my question is, when they chop up this protein sequence, first of all, why are they 
doing that because doesn't that lose the like quaternary folding properties of the protein that helps a lot with its function? You know, that's a really good point. My guess is it was computationally easier to do and they might've grouped it. I didn't look too far into the method section. I just looked at how their code generally, at least like how they describe their code to work. But that's a good point because you're gonna have, you know, it's not like this linear thing where, you know, if you have a sequence of one to 400 amino acids, it's not necessarily like 200 to 220, those positions are gonna be clumped together. You could have them in vastly different locations, um, yep. depending on how it, the protein folds. That's a really good point. I don't know if they chunked them by, you know, generally, if you have hydrophobic sequence, like hydrophobic amino acids in a row, maybe they'll end up together or same thing with like the hydrophilic sequences. I, I don't actually know how they did their grouping. I just know generally that they grouped them, but that's a really good point, Oscar. They oh. scored each sequence by peptide length, charge residues, hydrophobic residues. Yeah, so and maybe they just assumed by grouping them in these groups they kind of can at least assume a little bit how they will fold but i mean it depends on how you combine them yeah so. i mean it doesn't necessarily look like they had like a bio i don't know if they had like a department of biochemistry individual no it's just computational maybe. right it was just yeah, like simulations it's computational and the group that it comes from the caesar de la fuente nunez he's part of uh, the machine biology group in the Department of Psychi uh, Psychiatry and Microbiology, Department of Bioengineering and Chemical and Biomolecular Engineering, and then also Institute for Computational Sciences. So he's associated with all those schools. No, but I, I really, I think this is a really cool approach where you're, you're literally using the advantage of billions of years of evolution, like looking at the whole human proteome and by looking at plant proteomes as well. And then you're combining that with these machine learning simulations that can do like millions of trials. So combining those two, you'll be able to find these molecules that will have antimicrobial properties. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's a nice initial screen, right? So it's not necessarily yeah. like, as, as they pointed out, they were only 68% effective out of the 55. Not bad though. No, not not bad at all, but not it wasn't like the most highly, like highly effective program ever, but it's a really nice screen, right? If you can screen and remove some X percentage of your total proteins, and then you're, you're left with a much smaller amount. And then you could even from there do another filter where you just do clustering. So like which sequences have the same chemical properties. Mm -hmm. And so then you're able to say, okay, well, these ones have this unique chemical property. We have these different bins. Let's just pull a protein from each bin and see if they're actually antimicrobial. Did you also mention that they kind of looked at like what structures these proteins were interacting with and grouping them that way as well? I don't remember them discussing any structural information. They had tried to filter out previously identified structures. So they just called them motifs, but generally those are your sequence. You have a string of sequences, right? Or a string of amino acids. So you have some sequence within your protein and those are usually have some level of conservation in them. So like if you have, I don't know, some like one to 50 and it's made up of, I'm just going to say random letters like A, B, 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 C, D, et cetera, et cetera. Within that, that'll generally fold a certain way. And so I think that's the idea is you have this characteristic fold or characteristic sequence of our typical antimicrobials. And they were kind of trying to filter those out and really look for the novel um, sequences. But also it didn't, I mean, 
I know that maybe we're getting into this, I forget, but I remember that, did they look at combining different peptides together? Yeah, so they looked see. at a combinatorial effect to see if it was the right. effective. And I don't remember if they did single as well. Mm -hmm. A lot of their experiments they ended up following through were the combinatorial effect ones. So outside of those, they might've done additional single ones. I cannot exactly remember from the paper, to be honest. Yeah. But I mean, combinatorial effects that definitely had a higher percentage yes. of, yeah. It def it, I mean, as I said, it was similar in their in vivo model of thi of the skin abscess. It was very similar. I think they, I think they used the, the polymoxin B. It was very similar to polymoxin B as far as its activity. So I think that that's a pretty, pretty clear sign that it like the the combinatorial effect is what's best now it'd be interesting to look at you know an additional paper trying to filter out and come to the conclusions as to what combinatorial effects work best because my guess is now it's not all of them that'll be synergistic so what chemical properties together have these synergistic effects hmm, yeah good thinking yeah yeah like maybe you want both hydrophobic and like cationic or whatever or just cationic and like, you know, i don't know <laughs> yeah, I don't. Yeah, I, I don't know all the the physical chemical properties they were looking for. I just know it's kind of how they did the screens. Yeah, yeah. All right. With that, do we want to move on to some nanozymes? Yeah, we're we'll go complete complete different direction, moving away from computational, going to the strict wet lab. All right. Well, with this next article, we're going back into nanozymes because we just cannot get enough. Uh, this article is called Surface-Bound Reactive Oxygen Species that Generate or Generating Nanozymes for Selective Antibacterial Action. And this is from the Hefe National Laboratory for Physical Sciences at the Microscale at the University of Science and Technology of China. Basically, in the beginning, they talk about how microbial resistance deaths are very are becoming more and more common. 700,000 in 2014, and that it's predicted that in 2050, it will go up to 10 million deaths globally per year due to antimicrobial resistance. And I guess that's terrifying. <laughs> yeah, but, that's very bueno. Yeah, <laughs> I guess they, uh, they want to try to prevent that. And the way that they're doing that, they are taking an approach by creating a small silver palladium nanozyme that produces reactive oxygen species that oxidizes diverse cellular structures in bacteria that, which actually makes it a really unique solution to help tackle antimicrobial resistance because they believe that uh, resistance cannot really be built to, built against uh, these reactive oxygen species. The biology behind the reacts, reactive oxygen species is actually really cool. So first of all, reactive oxygen species are like peroxides, superoxides, hydroxyl radicals, and they're all kind of created by oxygen molecules that then react with usually different metals in complicated ways. Um, and that's why a silver palladium molecule is used in this example. But the biology that's really cool is that the problem is with the reactive oxygen species, they obviously react with everything. They're just small molecules, but the reason that the mammalian cells are unaffected and that the bacterial cells are the ones that die is because bacterial cells 
cannot endocytose like mammalian cells. Now, I didn't know this previously, but I think it's really cool. Bacterial cells, they can still take in small molecules like react our species, but not at specific, like they have to be like specific charges and specific sizes. And with the palladium silver compound, the bacterial cells are not able to engulf it, whereas mammalian cells do. Now, you may think like, oh, well, if the mammalian cells are engulfing the uh, silver palladium compound, aren't the mammalian cells the one that are going to die? No, because <laughs> somehow the vesicles that the mammalian cells use to engulf the silver palladium compound kind of protects the mammalian cell from the reactive oxygen species that are produced. Um, however, for the bacterial cells, the silver palladium compound remains on the surface and creates these reactive oxygen species that react with the membrane and cell wall and cause destruction. And they, they proved this by basically dumping a ton of this silver palladium compound in a mammalian cell culture, and they saw no effect on cell viability, which is really cool. Cell viability being like the percent of cells that are alive in a cell culture. One other cool thing is yeah. that palladium is kind of expensive and silver is very cheap, but silver will not generate these free radicals on their own. Uh, or these uh, reactive oxygen species. And so the combination of palladium silver is a cool solution. Potentially, it makes it a little bit more accessible versus if you just had palladium, right? Like, I don't think hospitals are going to buy bags, or I don't even know where this comes in bags, uh, <laughs> boxes, boxes of palladium nanoparticles. But these silver uh, palladium particles, it's like 0.38 molar palladium, and, and then the rest is silver. Uh, but yeah, I thought that was really cool that they were able to kind of show that a having more palladium isn't always better after 0.38 it was kind of you know didn't change that much um but that was a cool way that they were able to address the issue of the expense of palladium exactly they they kind of optimized it to find yeah. the least amount of palladium they could use that still made it very effective at producing reactive oxygen species yeah and that's really cool that they were already thinking about that but some of the tests that they did to make sure or like so another cool test that I wanted to mention, just to the way that proved how or that the mammalian cells were actually endocytosing, was that they tested a macrophage raw 264.7 cell line in 37 degrees and 4 degrees Celsius. And they saw that in 4 degrees Celsius, no of the palladium compounds were endocytosed. And that means that the mammalian cells, they are in fact engulfing them because at 37 degrees, they were engulfed. and it doesn't work. They can't engulf at four degrees Celsius because endocytosis is a energetically, um, like they need energy, the cells need energy to endocytose molecules. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, I, I agree. I thought that was really cool. It was a kind of a clever experiment instead of having to do knockouts of all of like the different genes, they were just like, we could just make this really cold and then things can't endocytose when it's cold. So let's see. Yeah, exactly. It's creative. They also tested to make sure in mice, they tested for interleukins to see if like, if there was an immune response when the palladium compound was added, obviously you don't want an immune response or no, they do want an immune response. And they said they tested different interleukins such as interleukin one beta, interleukin six and TNF alpha and some other ones. And after 24 hours, the interleukins were significantly higher, which means that 
their body is producing a immune response. Yeah, and that was done in the, um, the like I think it's an abscess model. It might be that is that an abscess model, uh, abscess murine model, but basically it's like a skin wound. Yes, yeah, so they had tested that. Yes, skin yeah. wound. Um, they showed images of that as well. Yes, which were kind of gross. I'm not gonna lie, I was a little yes. like. <laughs> But I mean, they were effective. They compared, they showed the difference. Yeah. The wound healed in the one where the, they added the silver palladium compound. Yeah. Also, I'll just, I'm just going to mention, so it was flip-flop. They found less interleukin, like less of the inflammatory compounds following the treatment. Okay. That's what I thought. I, th- I, yeah, I yeah. totally and, flipped it up. And I, I think like you bring up a great, great point because you would think that you would want these inflammatory compounds high, but really yeah. what it shows is like you're able to it, it, it's able to remove the bacteria relatively quickly without actually causing a huge immune response that may be destructive. Exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. Which is really cool. Like this is actually like a really cool technology in my opinion. And it's potential for helping treat skin infections is really high. I think, you know, it wouldn't be great for treating like intestinal infections because those are anaerobic environments where you don't really have a lot of oxygen. So it might not be as helpful there, but for treating skin infections, these are, these present a really interesting uh, solution to skin infections. Yeah. And I also, I wonder if they actually tested this as well, but if it would be a good treatment for, I mean, antimicrobials are used everywhere, but a, a very common use of them is in the hospitals to clean surfaces. Yeah. And so they tested that and it's very effective in that as well. It, yeah, it remains on the surface of whatever they're cleaning. But yeah. with that comes problems of like, I mean, we already use antimicrobials on surfaces everywhere. And it's in like, antimicrobials are in so many things that you just wouldn't guess. And that kind of causes antimicrobials to stick around in the environment. And I mean, they just end up being in all living things at some point if you use it too much. And so something they would have to test eventually, I think, is what are the long-term effects of this compound in living things like if they accumulate everywhere do they are they able to get flushed out of human systems slash animals plants you know i mean i guess it's it's hard to test that but that is kind of a problem with antimicrobials today i had a question in the article um they mentioned how these nanozymes could help with the formation of biofilm and that's why they can use it on like medical devices that go in the body I was wondering, another common form of biofilm is like cavities. So I wonder, could we like put this in like toothpaste somehow? Ooh. Stop the formation if you have biofilm or like cavities forming, if you put it in toothpaste. Yeah, I think that's that's a super good question. And that brings us back to kind of Oscar's point though. More testing is needed to figure out, you know, the effects of these. Are they degraded? How do we deal with them? The only problem is like with toothpaste, like there, we have a lot of good bacteria in our mouth too. And oh, yeah, I don't know how true. selective this <laughs> compound is. I feel like it's just going to kill everything at sight. So yeah, I don't know yeah. how I would want, I don't know if I would want to put it in my mouth, to um, be honest. But for the case of cavities, you know, maybe that's a way you can help deal with it. It's worth it. Yeah, yeah. For like a one time, not at like using it every day, but yeah. No, no. I, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think, yeah, the use on catheters and the use on as a cleaning agent is, I think is really interesting because if it's going to be used as an antimicrobial for wound infections, right? I think it's a fairly hefty process to go through the FDA. Like that takes a fat minute. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think the 
I would imagine the process to be used as a cleaning agent is much, much less. And so as far as like direct translation of research, this is a, you know, to me, a clear area that it can help with. And quite frankly, healthcare associated infections are one of like the leading causes of death in healthcare uh, settings. And so mm-hmm. being able to minimize those is huge. And that's a, offers a really, really awesome option to help minimize healthcare associated infections. But yeah, I think that this is super cool. Oh, we forgot to mention, if you have time, you should look at the images for this article because oh, yeah, definitely they take scanning electron microscopy images, I think. I think they're SEMs. And you can look at the membranes of these bacteria because the way they figured out how, to, how it works is they took pictures and it literally like blows holes in the bacteria's membranes. And it's incredible. It's, yeah, it pops them like balloons. It's so Amazing. cool. It's yeah. like this... This paper is really cool. And like they do. Here, let me say the title again, just so that everyone can look it up. Surface bound reactive oxygen species generating nanosymes for selective antibacterial action. Yeah, it's, it's a cool, it starts with like a lot of cool chemistry. And also if you're into the chemistry side of things, it starts with a lot of really cool chemistry. They do a lot of inorganic, I think, type chemistry. And then they do some cool characterization of it. And then, you know, if you're into like cellular biology, they move to cellular. They literally do everything. Like this paper is like. It's a monster. It, it, it is a little bit of a monster of a paper. It's really. In a long. good way. Yeah. But it's so cool. You know, they move from like chemical, uh, the design, the chemical characterization, the application in vitro. So in cell culture, the application in a urine model. And then in my opinion, the most directly applicable on surfaces. Like it's a great paper. Yeah, I didn't even, I mean, I barely brushed the surface of what they did in this. I just kind of oh, yeah. tried to give an overview. But yeah, I think if we do read to, more, if you're interested. Yeah, if, if we tried to go through the whole thing, it would take us like two hours. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's incredible. One, one last thing is what was also cool is they did additional characterizations with non-silver palladium nanoparticles. And they found that really it's these nanoparticles. It doesn't necessarily have to be the palladium. I cannot off the top of my head remember what the additional nanoparticles were, but they found similar effects with other nanoparticles of other metal compositions. And so I would say, are there additional cheaper options? Uh, more affordable? Yeah, they used titanium. They tested titanium a decent amount. Do we think titanium is cheaper than palladium? I don't know. I, I don't know the cost of either of those things, to be honest. Why is palladium so expensive? It's just rare. Okay. So then maybe titanium is a little cheaper. Oh, sorry. Thallium. They used thallium. Thal- I don't know what thallium is. It, I imagine it's a metal, but. Oh, no, no, they use titanium. Sorry. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I imagine that as we continue to explore these metal bound um, reactive oxygen species, we'll continue to find more affordable options. And it's a really cool way. It's like, it's like in the lab, we clean everything with ethanol and bleach because it's non-selectively killing of everything. You know, if you're in a bacteria lab, you kill everything with bleach. If you're in a mammalian cell lab, you kill everything with bleach. And so this offers, you know, a similar opportunity, except it doesn't kill everything. It kills bacteria selectively. Yeah. So as yeah. long as you want to kill all the bacteria in an area, which like on surfaces, that's definitely what you want, then it's perfect. Yeah. All right. That was my small tangent because I thought that the other nanoparticle thing was really cool. But other than that, that's kind of all, all I have. Me as well. To be yeah. honest. I mean, I could talk about this forever, but. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I think this is also quickly to mention, like this topic is huge and we just like dipped our toes into it. Yeah. 
I'm sure we'll come back to antimicrobial stuff in the future. So yeah, don't worry if you thought this was cool. <laughs> yes, there are so many ways we're developing new antimicrobials that this is only, you know, a small section of methods. There, it's, it's, a, it's a very large field because it is a huge issue. Um, so there's- What that. was the, like, phagocytes? Which one was the one that we just, like, didn't mention? Oh, phages. Phages. Phage, Phage therapy. therapy. Yep. Yeah. That's another one, but. Yes, there are additional therapy. Yeah. For another day. <laughs> there are phage, that, that could be a whole episode on its own too, is phage therapy. Yeah, definitely. Um. Okay, that's all from us today. Thank you for listening to Daily Discoveries.